So as a pastor, one of my frustrations, um, I suppose, and maybe many of you share that, is I, I get a little frustrated from time to time with our culture's preoccupation with sports and athletics. I mean, you know, now listen, I, <laughs> all right, someone's awake here today. Thank you, Christiane. That's great. Uh, you know, I, don't get me wrong. I love sports. Uh, I think pitchers and catchers reported yesterday and uh, position players report in four days. So it's not that I don't love sports. I do love sports. However, like many people, I love it when I see an organization value people above winning. And I, I mean, who in here would say winning is more important than people? Who in our culture would say that, right? But our actions reflect something very differently than that. Um, and it's especially true at the university level. When you're dealing with student-athletes, and, and a lot of these people are just kids, and, and when you're telling them the, you know, 60 or 70,000 people in the stands demand winning, and so that's, because they have dollars, that's more important than you as a person, that's the message that often gets sent. I've, I love organizations that value students or people above winning. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why, like many of you, I always respected Coach Joe Paterno. thought he was a great football coach. He had a reputation, reputation for teaching his players, for valuing them. He was the guy who was supposed to do coaching the right way. His priorities were supposed to be right on. For Coach Paterno, winning wasn't supposed to be everything. He was supposed to have his priorities right. Except for that now infamous day 10 years ago when he received word of a suspicious allegation about Jerry Sandusky. And that's when Joe Paterno's true priorities came out. It's pretty obvious that sports, success, reputation, even friendships were priorities above children. One moment, one man, one mistake, he should have gone to the authorities instead. He just did the minimum requirement. It's obvious that winning was more important than children. Now, a lot of people in the media have been very hard on Coach Paterno. And even after his death, the criticism has slowed only slightly. And here's the deal. We can all get a little self-righteous in this, and, and we can talk about how his priorities were all out of whack. But what it should really cause us to do is look at our own lives a little bit and ask us, what are my priorities? How should I evaluate my priorities? What do you say your priorities are? What do I say my priorities are? Do my actions match my words? Is my life about what I say it is? Or do my actions demonstrate something differently? Are my priorities really my priorities? Or am I just going through the motions? Today I want you to understand that the Christian life is about prioritizing Jesus. Not going through the motions. This life that we call the Christian life is about prioritizing Jesus. Putting him first, not just going through the motions. These next two series that we're going to do tie together very neatly. Um, we're going to do a series in Haggai for about six weeks, and then we're going to jump over to Malachi. By the way, the pronunciation of Haggai, um, there are, you can go either way. You can pronounce it Haggai or Haggai or Haggai. You'll hear me say all three at some time, and uh, it's okay. You know, you can pronounce Haggai any way you want, except for Frank. It doesn't sound anything like Frank, but you can say it any way you want. Um, there's a uh, dispute on how you're supposed to say it. So there you go. I just said that for Ryan because he made fun of me 
for saying it the wrong way. All right, um, so I'm excited about these two series. We're going to talk uh, in Haggai about priorities, and then we're going to flip over to Malachi, and we're going to talk about going through the motions. And so what do I want to accomplish today is today is an introduction to the entire series. And today might be a little historical. Um, so we're going to spend some time talking about history. If history makes you gloss over, uh, work hard to stay with me. If you're Pam Alexander, you're going to be very excited because she loves history. And so, uh, but we're going to do a little bit of history. We have to set the context and the base for these next two or these next two or three months of sermons that we're going to be in. And so, hang in there with me in this first part. What I aim to do is, is really three things today. I want to set the context of these two books. I want to look at the overall message of Haggai. I want to look at the overall message of Malachi. And I want to walk away today challenged to prioritize Jesus, not just go through the motions. So let's start by setting the context. Let's just start there. Let's set the context. Um, To understand where Haggai and Malachi fit in the overarching theme or the overarching story of God's word, it's it's important that we do that. I often tell you that this is one story. It's not just a collection of random stuff. God is writing a story. It's his story in human history. And so every book of the Bible has a place in God's story. The books of Haggai and Malachi are no exception. They have a place. Um, Haggai and Malachi were written about 90 years apart, and they're in the basic same place in the, in the biblical story of history. Um, if we would start in Genesis chapter 12, you'll remember... Um, from if you were here three or four years ago when we did our Through the Bible series, we, in a year, we went through the, this entire story. But we talked about how the God's story of him and his people really starts in Genesis chapter 12. It's when God picked out this guy named Abraham, and he chose Abraham. He said, Abraham, for no righteousness of your own, for no reason of your, nothing you've done, I choose you, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And of course, you remember, Abraham was an old, old man, and Sarah was an old, old woman, and yet God blesses them with this covenant child, Isaac. And he promises to make Abraham into a great nation. Um, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And at the end of Genesis, the book of Genesis, we see Abraham, Abraham's grandchildren and great-grandchildren end up in the nation of Egypt. And they end up there, and God protects them. And over the next few hundred years, those, those 70 people multiply like rabbits or gerbils or hamsters or mice. They go crazy. And after uh, uh, several hundred years, you end up with a nation of one to two million people. I mean, they, they got down to business, okay? And so, and then you know the story. A, a pharaoh arose who didn't know of Joseph, and, and he rose, and he put the Israelites into captivity. And of course, God raises up Moses. We looked at Moses last week. Moses goes and says, let my people go. And he delivers the message, and he takes the people out of Egypt across the Red Sea. They go get the, the Ten Commandments. They get the law. They become God's people. God leads them up to the promised land. I'm going fast, okay? And so at the end of the promised land, they enter Joshua. Now Moses is dead. Joshua takes them into the promised land. They conquer the land. And now uh, the, the people settle in. And God's people settle into the land. And they say, we want a king. Now, God wants to be their king. And he's not initially so excited about this idea of a king. But, but he says, okay, if you want a king, fine. And he gives him Saul. And Saul doesn't work out so well. And uh, um, Saul rejects God. He's got his own interests in mind. And so 
God raises up a king after his own heart, and we have King David. And what's really fascinating is, is you got this group of wandering people that end up in the land, and they don't really follow God that well, even they're supposed to be his people. But God raises up a king who's a man after God's own heart, David, who doesn't do that well in, in, in following God's rules and laws. David screwed up big time. Yet, at the end of this time, God brought peace to the nation. By the end of David's reign, God brought peace to the nation. And by the time we get to Solomon, David's son, the people have been worshiping God. The people's influence, this nation was, was one of the wealthiest, most prosperous nations in the world. It was full of influence. Things were going well. Solomon builds, the, David's idea was to build a temple. God says, well, I'm not going to have you do it. I'm going to have your son do it. Solomon builds this magnificent temple, a temple, a place where God would be worshiped, a place where his glory would dwell in the Ark of the Covenant, in the, in the Holy of Holies in this temple. This was God's uh, special place for the Israelites to worship him. But the end of Solomon, that, that's Solomon's greatest accomplishment is the temple. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, doesn't do so well. Uh, the nation splits in two. And for the next few hundred years, the Israelites are in two countries, and all of them are doing very poorly at following God's laws and decrees. God tells them time and time again, listen, the way I've told you to live my, your lives is important. These laws that I've set out are important. Your love for me is important. Time and time again, God tells them, and the people just pretty much ignore God. And so finally, the Bible tells us that God disciplines those he loves. And so he warns them and he warns them. And after a hundred years of being very, very patient with his people, in the year 722, the world power at the time, Assyria, comes down and, it conquers, and it conquers the northern kingdom. He destroys the north. Assyria wipes out the north and spreads them all over the world. So we're left with just the southern nation. And about a hundred years later, in 606 B.C., God's people... Those people still were not following God, and God brought the same judgment upon them. But this time, he brought in the country, the nation of Babylon. And in 606, Jerusalem was conquered, and this temple that Solomon had built, this magnificent, glorious, extravagant temple, was destroyed. But God wasn't done with his people. He saved a remnant. In 606, when Babylon conquered him, they took this remnant of, of people, of, of Jewish people, and, and they took them back. And they did the 900-mile trek, which, you know, you don't just get in a car and drive it, right? A, a massive, I mean, it's like going to another world. 900-mile trek, this remnant of people. And they took them and they exiled them. And in Jewish history and in the Bible, this is known as the exile. For 70 years, God's people were exiled in Babylon. This is where we get the stories of Daniel. Remember Daniel and, and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace and, and that whole stuff. Queen Esther, if you remember the story of Esther, all this happened in the exile. And the people wondered, was God done with us? Is God done with us? But you know what? God wasn't done with his people. When they were in captivity, they flourished again. They, they continued. They kept their national identity as Jews. They flourished and at the end of 70 years, God raised up a man um, in the year 536. He raised up a man named Zerubbabel, which is a great name. If you're looking for a middle name for a child, I recommend Zerubbabel. It's great. 
And so uh, Zerubbabel, great, awesome name. All right, so uh, Zerubbabel leads um, a group of exiles, about 50,000 Jewish people back. And their job is to rebuild the temple. They're going to rebuild this temple that Solomon built, that God destroyed, or that, excuse me, that the Babylonians destroyed. And they're going to rebuild this temple. And they go back in the year 536. And this is the point at which Haggai writes. It's in this post-exilic period. These are post-exilic prophets. You want to know why it's called post-exilic? It's post the exile, after the exile. They were writing after the exile. That's what that means. So Haggai and Malachi are both writing in a period of time where this remnant of God's people are back into the promised land and, they, and they're supposed to be working on rebuilding the temple under Zerubbabel and Ezra, and then under Nehemiah later, rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem. This is their job. They're putting things back together. When Zerubbabel took the people back, they landed, and you have to understand that, that now the, the country of, that used to be Israel, this was no longer a flourishing place. It had been devastated, decimated. And so it was like living on the Old West frontier. They didn't go, they didn't have the, the amenities of, of a civilized country. They're on the frontier. They're on their own out there. It's like establishing a new colony almost. And these people go, and this is what life's like. For a year, they work on just building the foundation of the temple. But after about a year, the, 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 the natives of the land, the savages came after them. And, and uh, these groups that they call the Samaritans, who they ended up hating. And we see Jesus do some really cool things with the Samaritans in a few hundred years. But uh, these Samaritans come and they create opposition for the Jewish people. And so what do the Jewish people do? They just stop. Like, I know we were supposed to come back. And I know we were supposed to work on the temple. But the opposition's hard and we're on the frontier here. Why? I mean, we don't have running water. Uh, we don't have toilets. Of course, nobody would have had those, but you know what I mean. All right, so uh, no, no satellite TV. I mean, they got nothing. And so they're out here on the frontier, and they got nothing, and they say, this is not worth it. The opposition, I mean, it's hard enough just to eke out an existence, let alone rebuild this temple amidst opposition. So for 15 years, the people just went, ah, I'm good. Their lives should have been about God and prioritizing his priorities. But really, in many ways, they were just going through the motions. The Christian life, friends, today is about prioritizing Jesus. It's not about going through the motions. This is where Haggai comes in. So they went back in 536. They worked on the temple for a year. They quit. Fifteen years go by. We're now to the year 520 B.C. They're hanging out just trying to eke out an existence, and Haggai writes. And the message of Haggai is, it happens through four visions or four words from the Lord. Richard, you can go to the next uh, slide there. As we talk about, nope, that's not the slide I wanted. That's the slide I wanted. Thank you. As we talk about the message of Haggai, um, you know, God gives Haggai four visions, and Haggai is supposed to convey the Lord's words directly to Zerubbabel, the governor, and then to the priests, the religious leaders. And if you look at your text in Haggai, I'm just going to give you a quick overview. You'll see it in verse, verse 1, chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet 
Haggai to Zerubbabel. Then look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Here's your second vision from the Lord. It says, again, you'll see those words, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. And then you flip over to chapter 2, verse 10. In the second year, Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. And then we got our fourth vision in uh, chapter 2, verse 20. The word of the Lord came to Haggai. Do you see this phrase repeated over and over here again? The word of the Lord. This phrase is incredibly important to Haggai. This word of the Lord was the very words of God to the prophet. Now, we forget and we take for granted this phrase, the word of the Lord. Because what we as people generally do is we forget about the grandeur and greatness of God. How big God is that he would communicate his his words to us. Our life group watched this video by Louis Giglio on Wednesday night called How Great Is Our God. If you haven't seen this video, you should. If you just want to stand back and go, wow, God is great. That's what you walk away with. That's all you walk away with. Wow, God is great. Uh, Talk to me. Talk to a couple people in my life group. I know Jay's got a copy. Uh, I think Hallie Wells has a copy. Some other people have copies of this. I know this video is growing around. Grab somebody and grit this video and watch it. And I'm reminded about this bigness of this God. Louis Giglio talks about how this God who breathes out stars. Then he talks about the size of these stars in the universe. I mean, it's just, it blows your mind how big God is. This God who can create the universe with his words. This is the God we worship. We're so inundated with communication, though, to anymore that words don't mean anything to us. They don't mean anything. We talk about the word of the Lord and we yawn. <laughs> the words. I mean, think about the State of the Union address. I mean, just ima- I imagine 75 years ago when the president would get on for the State of the Union address, it, people would huddle around their radios. They'd wait for the word. They'd listen to what the president had to say. It was important Today, we've got 743 channels to choose from. And I saw um, in the, the last president's, uh, the last State of the Union address the president gave, the ratings came out, less than 12% of the population even tuned in for part of the president's State of the Union speech. We're just so inundated with words and choices. And it doesn't, by the way, it doesn't matter which political party the president's from because they're all for about the last 20 years about the same ratings. We're so inundated with words that they don't mean anything anymore. It just comes blah, 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 blah. Nicholas was listening to a song in the car. I couldn't, I'm old. I couldn't understand the lyrics, okay? So that's how I know I'm old because I didn't get it. But I caught one phrase. The one phrase was, uh, wake me when your lecture is over. (laughs) Blah, blah, blah. You're talking. Your words mean nothing. God's words should be important. You know, at Waukee Community Church, we, this is one of our values and priorities is the word of God. These are the words from the God who breathes out stars with his words. From the God, the creator of the universe. These are his words. This thing is important to us. This is why we tell you to read this thing. This is why every week we stand up here and we elevate this. Many weeks we have someone read it out loud. These are God's words. They're important. And when the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the people listened. 
God's words are important. These are the words of the Lord. Okay, put that verse from Hebrews up there now. So I probably put them out of order, Richard. My apologies. Listen to this. It's talking about Jesus. This is in the New Testament many years later. Speaking of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. I mean, this is God. God gets involved. God cares. The God of the universe, the God who breathes out stars, is the same God who sustains us through his words. And this is the reason that we care about the word of God. So we preach the word. We have life groups based on the word. We disciple one another from the word. We serve each other because of the word. It guides us. It directs us. God's word sustains the universe. They're the key to the life. This thing is not a fable. It's not mythology. It's not um, somebody's thoughts that have evolved over several thousand years. These are the words of God. The word of the Lord came to Haggai in 520. And this is why it matters. The message that Haggai brought to the people was rebuild, get to work. Look at um, Haggai chapter 1 verse 3 again. Verse 3, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. It's time for you yourselves to be living in your, is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? You see, the, per, the people had returned to their former lives. They're just trying to eke out an existence. They'd encountered opposition. They stopped. God says, get back to work. Rebuild God's temple. Now, why does God care about a building campaign? I mean, we talk about over and over and over and over again and over and over and over again at Waukee Community Church that the church is not a building. This is a school. It's a cafeteria. We've got our famous hamburger stain right there. This is not a church, right? I, it's ketchup. I think it's ketchup. It's been there for six years. I'm just, it's there. Uh, you know, uh, this is not a church. This is a cafeteria. Why does God care so much about a temple, about a building campaign? I, Mark Dever um, wrote this. He says, why do you think that the rebuilding of the temple would be an acceptable offering to God? It was just a building. Honestly, when King David first brought it up with God, God didn't seem excited about it. So why would God care so much now? From the people's standpoint, the rebuilt temple would be a clear and public statement that they still wanted and valued God. It would indicate that he was a higher priority than everything else clamoring for attention in their lives. It would be a mark of their faith in God and their recognition of his priority in their own national identity. You see, Jesus makes a new temple. When Jesus comes, we don't have a temple anymore. If anyone preaches Haggai in the context of a building campaign... They are missing the point. The point of Haggai today is Jesus. Because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. When Jesus died, I love that. It's, it's like this little detail that the writers of the Gospels throw in there. The moment Jesus died, the veil of the temple, the one that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, the Holy of Holies where God's very present was, it was torn from top to bottom. It, why top to bottom? Well, it was a really tall curtain. 
No one could just jump up there and tear it. If you're going to tear the thing, you're going to do it from the bottom to the top. The point is God tore it. When Jesus came, when Jesus died, when Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, the temple is no longer a building. Check out what the temple is. Through God's Holy Spirit, the the place where God lives and dwells is you and me. We're the temple. So God doesn't care about buildings. God cares about priorities. Jesus should be the priority of each of our lives. The message of Haggai is all about Jesus. It's about prioritizing Jesus in our lives. Is it time for us to be living in paneled houses? Or is it time for us to get our priorities on Jesus? Where are your priorities today? Do me a favor. Don't fall asleep when I tell you to do this, but just just close your eyes for a second. Okay, it's okay. Just close your eyes. I'm not going to ask anybody to stand up or come forward. All right, I just want you to know that. Just close your eyes. It'll be okay. All right, close your eyes and imagine your life if you had everything the way you wanted it. Just get a picture in your head with your your eyes. Okay, so... Imagine you've got everything you wanted. It. Maybe you're imagining your job the way you want it, or, or a house the way you want it, or, or maybe it's your finances. You're like, oh, I'm a financial burden. Just imagine that life, your relationship, your kids. Maybe it's stability. Imagine your life the way you want it. Now, as you're thinking about that, is Jesus there? Is Jesus there? Now open your eyes. Okay, thanks. So, is Jesus there? Is he there? Was he in that picture anywhere? Because if he was missing from that, you're not prioritizing Jesus. You're missing something huge in your life. Just as the writer of, of, of ha- the prophet Haggai said, get back to work, prioritize God. So I'd say to you, prioritize Jesus. I love how the people respond. I love how the people respond. They respond with repentance. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people, what did they do when they got this message? They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. What is repentance? They repented. They said, you are right, God. Our priorities aren't straight. What's repentance? It's a fundamental change in the heart away from yourself, away from sin, and towards God. Faith is all that's necessary for salvation, but repentance is always tied. There's always a tie-in. Repentance is a fundamental change. How did the people demonstrate this repentance? Well, look. The whole remnant of the people, what did they do? They obeyed. They obeyed. They changed their behavior. They obeyed the voice of the Lord, too. They had reverence for the word. They read this thing. When God's word spoke, they revered his words. And the other thing they did is they feared him. Look at the end of the verse. And the people feared the Lord. They fundamentally changed how they viewed God. When you and I are convicted of wrong priorities, the proper response is repentance. A change of heart and action. 
That's how the people of Haggai responded. That's how they responded. They responded with a fundamental change. Now, this is the first of the post exilic prophets, but in about six weeks, we're going to jump to another book. And I don't even have time to tell you everything I want to tell you today about Malachi, so I'm going to just do a quick summary of Malachi for you. All right? Here's the deal. About 90 years passed. At, through Ezra and through uh, Zerubbabel and through uh, the prophet Haggai, the people responded. They rebuilt the temple. They got their priorities straight. They stopped working on their existence and they started prioritizing God. 90 years pass. 90 years pass. A new generation in the land living there has risen. The people get settled in and they get comfortable. And they forgot about the horrors of the exile because it had happened like, I mean, it had been 90 years since Haggai. It's been hundreds of years. It's been over 100 years since, you know, the people were in exile. So they forgot about all that and they got comfortable these people had been trained. They knew their history. They'd gone through their catechism class. They'd found themselves in similar places as their ancestors. They were comfortable. God was not a priority. And by the time we get to Malachi again, we're going to see that they were just going through the motions. Stop going through the motions is what Malachi is going to say. Make God the most important thing. The people of Haggai responded with repentance the people of Malachi, as we're going to see, responded by just continuing to go through the motions. You and I understand something about going through the motions, don't we? My first job I had was 14. My dad gave me a job as accounting firm. After hours, my job was to shred paper. And so they had a room. It was like a locked vault of paper that needed to be shredded. And they had a shredder that I swear was from 1925, okay? And so I, three sheets at a time. I, it's a room, right? Three sheets at a time. The thing overheated. I had to o- pour oil in it, I remember, to keep the shredder working. And so about every 20 minutes, I'd have to dump oil in there to keep the thing going. And so uh, I was excited because I knew I was going to make 275 an hour, and this was going to be a great job, and I was going to get there, and I was going to make money. It was going to be awesome. And so I got excited. And I'm telling you, I got in there, and I got this fucking paper. Dad said, okay, I'm dropping you off at the office. I'll be back in three hours to pick you up. Great, Dad. And I'm telling you, for the first hour, I was gung-ho. I mean, like, this is great stuff. Shred paper. I'm making money. I paid careful attention to oiling every 20 minutes and, and took a lot of time and care in how the paper was shredded. I wanted it to look right when it was thrown in the garbage. And so, you know, I mean, I took all kinds of special time. And it only took about an hour. <laughs> and all that fell away. I mean, at some point, it took about an hour before I was just going through the motions. I mean, yeah, I threw some oil in there. And uh, it didn't take long. I stopped cleaning up after myself. I think my dad was very glad when I said, oh, let's go work at High V instead. You know, um, it doesn't take long to go through the motions. In Malachi's day, God's people were just going through the motions. So um, it's a difference between the repentance that we see in Haggai and the motions, going through the motions that we see in Malachi. See, we, we get, when, when people get caught or convicted of sin, we get going through the motions. It looks like um, Twitter apologies is what that looks like, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm amazed now that people are tweeting how often people have to apologize for their tweeting. And so I just, uh, I read about 
Kanye West's apology for interrupting Taylor Swift's thing, and there was a tweet involved in there. You know, uh, Mark McGuire's steroid apology, Tiger Woods apologizing for everything, I think, you know. Uh, uh, we see Casey Kane tweeted insults to breastfeeding moms, and so he had a Twitter apology. Alec Baldwin uh, apologized for playing words with friends on the airplane. Ashton Kutcher um, pretty much said, I'm never going to tweet again. <laughs> that was his apology. And we're so used to damage control for apologies, aren't we? Yeah, whatever. You're just apologizing because you have to. We're used to that. I think that's the people of Malachi's day. The people of Haggai genuinely repented. The people of Malachi went through the motions. Friends, when we put Jesus at the top of our priorities, we respond with repentance. When we put religion on the top of our priorities, or when we remove Jesus from the top, we turn out like the people of Malachi. Okay, last thing here, and and then I'm done. Hang in here with me, okay? Watch this. So we have the difference between Haggai, people who genuinely repented, and Malachi, people who are going through the motions. How does God respond when we reprioritize our lives? I want to show you two verses that are really cool. The first verse is in Haggai chapter 2, verse 19. I think it's, I'm going to throw it up there. Um, Okay, so at the end of this, God says, here's how I'm going to respond. He said to them, is there any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. Okay, so basically what God's saying is, up to this point, you've planted stuff and you were lucky to get a little crop out of it, a tiny little crop. Basically, God's saying, I hope you planted all the seed this year because there's going to be an explosion in the harvest. I love how God blesses them. Look how, look how God, what God says in Malachi, Malachi, if you would just stop going through the motions, if you would just reprioritize your life, look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Do you have that one there, Richard? He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. God responds to our reprioritization of our lives through blessing. The truth of the matter is that the Lord disciplines those he loves. For those of us who don't prioritize Jesus in our lives, those of us who are just going through the motions, God withholds his blessing. Now, this is not a health and wealth gospel I'm preaching you. This is not do it all right and you'll be rich. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we have to seriously look at our lives and ask the question, is Jesus my priority? I always come back to this message that Thomas preached. He's not even here today to But he preached this message, delight in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. When we delight in the things God delights in, God gives us those delights. I mean, I just love, go back and listen to the message. It's online. If you haven't heard it, listen to it. It's good stuff. It's like, it was preached like three months ago. A friend of mine said, leaders, don't challenge your people to rearrange their priorities for priorities' sake. Focus on Jesus and the priorities will fall into place. All right, here's my big close, okay? Here it is. Uh, I drug this out about three or four years ago, and uh, people keep mentioning it to me, and and I think it's a good deal. These are my kids' plates. They have pink and orange matching plates. 
point of these plates is that none of the food touches each other, right? So we can put the, you know, our, our, you know, so we don't have any food mixing because that's disgusting and it won't get eaten. And so uh, that's the point of the plate, right? So many of us live our lives like this. We live our lives. We give God a corner and we say, Jesus, this is your part. Maybe you get them here, this one. Or maybe we even give him the big one. This is your part, but I'd like to keep the rest of the parts. Those are for me. There's a little acronym you've probably heard before. I hate it, but I'm going to tell you it anyway. It's that life is about joy. Jesus, others, and you. That's crap. He, hey, somebody said fart earlier. I can say crap. All right. So, uh, and I said both. Oh, man. All right. So, it's not, that, that's Jesus, others, you. It's not. It's all Jesus. It's all him. When you focus on Jesus, prioritizing him, not just on Sunday morning, but on Monday when you wake up and you get in the car and you drive to work. And on Tuesday when you come home and you're trying to be a great mom or dad or on Wednesday when you're doing it, it's about Jesus in everything. Over the next three weeks, you will be encouraged and challenged. And if you, if God calls you to repent, how will you respond? With genuine repentance or contempt? You see, God loves us just the way we are. But he loves us too much to leave us there. So let Jesus be the priority of your life. When God gives us a tough message like this, he also gives us hope. And I close with this. The last words of your Old Testament in Malachi. I love it because Malachi gives a pretty tough message. See, I will send you... These are the last words of the Old Testament, all right? See, I will send you a prophet, Elijah, before that great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. God gives a promise. That promise is John the Baptist. And a few hundred years later, John the Baptist comes on the scene in the Gospels. And preaches of Jesus, the hope of humanity. When we prioritize Jesus in our lives, God gives us hope. Let me pray and we'll close. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for um, this encouragement that we need to prioritize Jesus. God, thank you for a patient people who listened to a long message today. That I pray, God, that each one of us would live out the gospel, that Jesus would be part of every compartment. That it wouldn't be Jesus, others, you. That it would be Jesus. Be glorified in our lives. In your precious name we pray. Amen.